The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Casts. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and this is episode 148. And I am thrilled because I am here with one of my best buddies in the whole wide world, the guy who kicked off the MJ Cast with me seven years ago or whatever it was. Q, welcome back. It's great to be here with you. Hey guys. Hey, it's Q here from Studio Perth, dialing in on my uh, MJ Cast microphone, the Rode NT USB. It's a beast. <laughs> You've even got a sticker on it, right? I do have a sticker, <laughs> yes. Checker, check, um, I don't know. I'll send, I'll tag it on Instagram, but by the time you hear this, the story will be finished. But maybe you can put it as an actual Instagram post. Who, who can say? I might put it on my Twitter. You can go to my Twitter and see the photo of the awesome mic that, that these listeners actually bought for us. Yeah, well, let's not forget that, right? You deserved it. <laughs> well, it's trust me, money well spent. <laughs> Audio quality. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Well, it's been a it's been a minute. For both of us, really. Yeah, we haven't we haven't I don't know when the last episode was we did just you and I. It's gotta be some time ago, but it's we got some good news to discuss though. Yes, we're going to try and make this a uh, brief episode, like not three-hour Hobbit extravaganza. But <laughs> yeah, there's and there's some news that you've just added, which I haven't even seen. So and you won't let me scroll down. No, you're not to see allowed what to it see because you've got <sighs> a personal connection with the people that this news is about. So I want okay. you to go in cold, and and you're gonna you're gonna hear it. The same time as the listeners, <laughs> the so same way. Like a, a, a live reaction. Live reaction. Yeah, it's going to be. I'm, I'm looking forward. <laughs> I've been saving this one. All right, but um, I I need to give I need to give our listeners a bit of an update on what the hell has been going on for the past couple of months. Yes, I was just going to uh, push you to do that, <laughs> and just checking the episode number we've said is the correct episode number, right? Uh, so the thing is though that episode 149 was actually meant to be. A completely different episode, uh, as we teased on social media. I don't think we mentioned it in the last episode, but the whole plan was we were going to release an episode, and I'm not, I'm not going to reveal who it is. I might give a hint, but we were going to- You should give a hint. I think you should give a hint. I'll give a hint. So, it is a person, a, a woman, who was deeply involved in Michael Jackson's life, both his professional life and I would say his personal life as well because she- Hugely, yes. Yeah, she was uh, one of the main people at Neverland. Now, I'm not going to say who there it was, go. what their role was, because we still want to be a little bit, leave a bit of a surprise there. But yeah. And it's not Karen Faye. It's not Karen Let's Faye. get that out of the gate. We, we've, like, we've, people have asked Karen, bless you for asking. Yeah. Thank you, Belle, again. Uh, but it's not it's Karen. It's not Karen Faye. It's not Debbie Rowe. It's not <laughs> <laughs> that kind of- that was my guess when you were trying to get me to figure it out. I have, I have <laughs> spoken to Debbie Rowe before. She nearly came on the on the MJ cast. 
But um, what? Yeah, yeah. Back in season one, wow. you might you must be forgetting. Oh god, yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that we were talking cool. to her on Facebook Messenger, and she was keen for a little bit, and then not keen. And I won't get into why she wasn't keen. But anyway, so this this episode is recorded. So the good news is that we have done like a two and a half hour recording with this person, and we've done an extra twenty minute pickup recording to get even more stories from them, and. It sounds amazing, like it's a it's a hard edit. There's a lot of things in it that need to be fixed, but that's okay. We'll get it there. The problem was that my – I don't know whether it's my Mac or whether it's the Adobe software that I've got on there, but for some weird reason, for the first time in the MJCast history, this bug is happening where every time I save the audio when I'm working on it and then reopen it, the bug like screws up all the timing of the different clips. And in any given episode, we end up with like, like each track of audio finishes up with what's got to be over a thousand separate clips because we cut and edit and we take out arms and we take out awkward moments and we let's, yeah, let's clarify when you say you edit people's audio. Okay. Because you are not ever editing the context or what people are saying, you are never doing that. It's only taking out ums and ahs, thinking time, that stuff. clarification. If you flub up a word like I do often and can't remember the word and have to, what is that word? And melopony, that game that you play, <laughs> that you go, melopony. No. So it's only ever stuff like that for the quality of the show it's never ever anything that has affected the context so let's just be very clear about that yeah and you know sometimes there might be an, an artifact like a click sound or something like that over a word and we've got to take the same word from somewhere else in the show and copy and paste it back over there and um so lots of little things like that and because we end up with all of these thousands of individual cuts in the audio, which then in a multi-track looks like lots of different little clips, I don't know how or why, but when I reopen that session, all of the timing of those clips change and then words get chopped in half and there's we it just sounds ridiculous. And so I spent two whole days editing that episode, 149, doing nothing else for two whole days, day and night, but getting that ready. And then when I opened it back up to preview it before I released it, I was just, you can imagine, it was just, oh no. <laughs> and nothing I could do would fix it. In fact, we've done, Carter and I have done so many tests, editing little bits of the audio again from scratch and closing it and opening it and it'll have the same problem. And and long story short, there's nothing I can do to fix it right now. The audio, the raw audio is intact, so it's not going to be a problem fixing it at some point in the future. But I'm sort of just waiting on an update from Adobe or Mac OS or we, we don't quite know what's causing it. Is it the fact that we're saving it in cloud storage rather than local? We don't know, but we're trying to problem solve it to fix it. This episode we're recording now is going to be edited by somebody who's not me, so there's <laughs> no problem with it, hopefully. But yeah, listeners, please know that this episode is amazing. I can say hand on heart that, and I don't say this lightly, it is one of the best conversations we've ever captured with somebody who knew Michael Jackson. You are going to learn things. I was like, oh my God, we never knew that about him. And I can't wait to put it out. But patience is required in this case. Good luck and Godspeed. Thank you. Thank you.
we'll get there. We'll get there. But in its place, we're going to put out this lovely little regular episode chat news catch up. And there are some cool things to talk about anyway. Yeah. All right. So Michael Jackson's This Is It a documentary about the final rehearsals for the This Is It tour, which sadly never happened. That film is coming back to Netflix. I guess it must have disappeared around the Leaving Neverland time. I'm not really sure when it disappeared, but it did. And so Netflix, at least in America, is re-adding it for a limited time, apparently during September. Now, we're already in September, and I saw some tweets come through this morning of people that have been watching it. Uh, I think we got a tweet. Let me see. Yeah, we've got one here from Suzanne uh, at Suzanne account. And it's saying I'm currently watching This Is It and my heart is literally aching. It hurts. So it looks like it is back on there uh, for people to see if they want. If they haven't seen it yet, I'm sure that there's some younger or newer fans that may not have seen it. And so it is there to watch if people want to. It's back on Netflix for a limited time during September. (laughs) and what do you think about that what do you think about the film uh i don't need to watch it again myself i saw it many many times at the cinema as part of my grieving process and i don't need to watch it again personally at this point in my life yeah that's the same as me once every six months or so, I'm like, oh, I'm going to give this thing a bash again. Maybe I'll feel different. And I put it on and I get about five minutes into it, uh, roughly around the end of like, they don't care about us. You know, that bit where he sort of smiles and then it fades to black. Yeah. Right around that bit, I'm like, I can't do it anymore. No. <laughs> I guess because all the information comes back into my head about what we know that was going on at the time. Yeah. Talitha's wonderful book. Oh, and- yeah. All of that stuff. So, I mean, if people can stomach it and watch it, then cool. Yep. But if that's your thing, do it. And like, I have the memories of seeing it with you and Marnie and Damien and Chris. So, yeah, that's the sort of memories that I look back on and would hold on to more than what the actual film is. What's going on in the film? Absolutely. There you go. Done. All right, Q. So coming out to something a little bit more positive. And, you know, interestingly, this one really, I mean, from my vantage point, has not circulated around the community very much. But have you heard much about what's going on with this uh, CNN documentary on the Victory Tour? Uh, No. When you told me about it, I was so shocked and like i was like this is the most random thing (laughs) in all of the news stories and no i haven't heard anything about it and i have questions and we have no answers yeah it's it's weird so j randy tarabarelli michael jackson biographer just i think a couple of weeks ago or something like that put on facebook and i'll quote this he's got an image of the victory tour And he's got uh, some text with it that says, I'm filming for a doc tomorrow about the Jackson's Victory Tour. I usually don't like doing documentaries, too much trouble for what usually amounts to a lot of headaches for me when it airs. But I made an exception. Why? Because that was such an amazing and memorable show. Who here was lucky enough to be able to see one of those performances? Sound off below. I want to know. What the heck? That is honestly the most random thing. It's super random because Charlie Thompson reached out to to JRT and and sort of asked him a little bit about this. And I think he doesn't, I don't know whether he said it in the comments. It might've been a comment below where Charlie asked, but he revealed that it was for CNN, which in itself is weird. That is, yeah, for me, that's the most random part of it, actually. Yeah. 
So in the past, so when we've had Michael Jackson documentaries coming out of the estate before, so for Bad, the Bad Doco, Bad 25 Doco and Off the Wall, I think they went with ABC. And I can't determine whether this is – it's coming out by the sound of it probably around the time of the thriller anniversary. And so what we don't know is have the estate partnered with CNN to create this or is this just completely independent? We just don't know. For me, it would surely have to be like an estate commissioning this because CNN doing something this niche and also something that the fans would literally go crazy over in a good way, CNN doing something like that. I know that sometimes the estate execs leave no other option than for like people to create their own sort of things. But CNN to do that without them getting hired to do it. So <laughs> uh, it's just random and a bit exciting. It's really a bit exciting. exciting. I hope. I hope it's like a good thing. I hope it's not like the destruction of the Jackson family began here. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's some questions for sure. Like, is it really a victory to a documentary or is it a thriller one and Randy's just misconstrued it? I, I don't know because we know Spike Lee at one point said that he was working on a thriller one. So there could be that maybe. Or, you know, if it is a, a purely a victory to a thing, that is so good because uh, as good as some of the documentaries we've had before are, and I'm thinking about the Spike Lee ones and I'm thinking about, remember the one Michael Jackson did himself when he was alive, The One or something it was called? Oh, for when The the One's album came out. Yes. It was like an updated version of Legend Continues, yeah. but not quite as good. They're just, they're very broad and they're covering a lot of things in, in an hour and a half. Whereas if you choose a really specific thing like a tour, then I think that's going to be phenomenal. Imagine the amount of detail they can go into and the stories and, oh man, hopefully, oh, I just realized there's a chance we might be seeing some high definition victory tour footage. Oh, I think there's a very good chance of that. I, I'm just going to put my voice out there and say, give us the tour. Give us a concert on film from start to finish to accompany this, please. Oh, uh, yeah, that would be amazing. That, that would be so good. I think they did talk about in the original Thriller 40 press release, didn't they say they were remastering the short films as well? I think so. That does ring a bell. It's about 20 years too late. But um, <laughs> yes, I think... You know, I think that was mentioned. So maybe. I don't I don't know. I don't have any faith in them to do it correctly. Here we are dreaming again and we're going to get our dreams <laughs> smashed into a million pieces. Yeah. Why would I get my hopes up? They've told us they've remastered the films before and they absolutely were not. Uh, so who knows? Maybe somebody's working hard on the Victory Tour remastering that oh, for this so. documentary. That would be cool. Now, I just want to say, though, that I hope that they talk to some people connected to behind the scenes with this tour because we have uh, spoken with Howard Bloom. Elise did a brilliant interview with him. So good. And my favourite part of that interview was where he was talking about when the show nearly imploded and there was from memory it was like a they were rehearsing in an airport hangar or something and Michael was having a meltdown and wanting to cancel the the tour and that story like that hopefully they talked to Howard because he was like Michael's publicist oh. for this tour I think Howard Bloom is a genius an actual genius 
and a legend and they they absolutely need to include his experiences of this time. He was a big part of that. Huge. And there were so many other people like Sugarfoot. Oh. How can you do a victory to a doco without Sugarfoot? You can't. You can't. Like there are people now like us all, they're getting older. They need to capture those people's stories in something like this. Um, the brothers? You would think. Imagine if they did you it without would, you the family. Would think, that would be man, just not I can normal. absolutely, absolutely I can imagine it doing without them. 100% I can imagine <laughs> that, man. That's no stretch of the imagination at all. I would absolutely hope that would not be the case, though, because, oh, of course, um, they, were, they were sort of there, right? Okay, so we need to set our expectations at, you know, an appropriate level for this. I'm thinking the reality will be... No Jackson brothers. Instead, they'll interview the Jonas brothers to talk about the victory tour. I would still watch that for other okay. reasons, but <laughs> other reasons. Well, who knows? Hopefully, we don't have John Branker's crocodile tears. Yeah, like bad twenty-five. Yeah. But <laughs> oh my god, I don't know how low my expectations can be. I'm going to try and be positive because you know we did get some decent documentaries. Okay, from Spike, we got some decent stuff. So. I would hope that is the benchmark. Nothing below the Spike documentaries, please. Are you a big Victory Tour guy? Where do you rank it amongst the tours? I don't know. I've never sat and sort of ranked the tours. I think both Michael's and the Jackson's probably the most important, perhaps. For both camps. Wow. Interesting point because, of view. Because, and I, I mean important in that it was Michael's breakout time. Like this was, yes, it was for him. It was his big farewell and it was the only tour Thriller was going to get. And yeah, it was, was the Thriller tour. tour. It was the Thriller tour. And he was going to take that and run with it and make it that. So that's really important. Also, you know, the, the, the budget for it and the size of it was huge. And then for the brothers, I think, you know, they'd sort of worked up until this point. And this is like not a swan song because that makes it sound like a bad thing in a way. But like this was their huge, bam, farewell, golden moment, diamond moment, platinum moment on stage. And that it was just so of its time. And so bigger than its time. Oh, I love those thoughts, man. You've got me excited. And and it just reminded me, hearing that, hearing you put it that way, it just reminds me how much it needs its own thing, whether it's a documentary uh-huh. or a release. Like, this is a big deal. Huge deal. This is like Beatles level, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it is. It's huge. It's like, how do I put this? Like, how many nights did they sell out in- Dodgers Stadium. It's some like it was like a record number or something. Record breaking amount. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is still nothing to be sneezed at. Absolutely. Get excited, but cautiously excited. Let's all just hope for the best. Oh my God. And send JRT some uh, tips of who to talk to. Do not forget the brothers and do not forget Howard Bloom and Sugarfoot and all those big names that we still have alive. Even like 3T. Well, like, would be amazing. They were in the audience watching it as little boys being inspired for their own careers. There's so many people that would be great to hear yeah. from around this. Probably not Paula Abdul, but, you know, that's cool. Oh, Catherine. 
That would be the best case scenario. Yes. Choreographers like Vincent Patterson would be great to talk to because he, like Vincent, I don't know how directly he was involved with the tour, but he helped choreograph a number of, you know, like Beat It and Thriller and, you know, sadly Michael Peters probably can't be, a, you know, won't be a part of it unless they use contemporaneous footage. But yeah. but Vincent Patterson, he would be amazing because a lot of the choreography that came out in the videos ended up being in this tour. Oh, there's a lot of people they could draw from. Yeah. Honestly, Vincent's still one of my favorite interviews ever, ever, ever. Don't forget his books now out. I think it was a book that he had out in French yeah, for a years number of ago, years. And just, now yeah. it's um out in English. Yeah. It's like stories from his long and amazing career. I have not read it yet, but I really want to. Well, it's out there. It's my school holidays mission. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next news topic. This is something that happened a while back that we never spoke about on the show. And... I still don't know the full story of how this happened, but what we do know is that within the last couple of months, live sound desk audio of Michael's vocals have leaked from the Munich show of the History World Tour. Now, famously, we all know, and we've spoken about it on the show many times before, when you watch any number of History Tour concerts, what you're seeing is Michael lip syncing to CD vocals you know, over the top rather than his own vocals. And and for a number of reasons, you know, he was obviously very, very sick during that time with whatever was going on, laryngitis or whatever lung issue was happening, but he was sick. And so he chose to lip sync a lot of that. And now, so what's happened is that we've found out, well, we kind of knew this for quite a long time. I think Michael Prince might've told us at some point that Michael was always recording his live vocals anyway, even though that they didn't get heard by the paying, you know, the audience at the show or the, uh, you know, the people that would have seen the television broadcast, he was still recording them through the sound desk. And so we always knew they existed, but we'd never quite heard them. We had an idea of what they would sound like though, because of some songs in there, like want to be starting something and the Jackson five section, which was live. And so for whatever reason, I don't know how or why, but these, the whole, all of the vocals have come out from the concert and people have been putting them on YouTube and Q, I don't know if I'm exaggerating here, but they sound pretty horrendous. <laughs> like they sound with reasons why, but they sound pretty, it's hard to listen to. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Why would he have been recording them, do you think? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was he didn't know if he sounded as bad as he actually did. Maybe he didn't know they were being recorded. Maybe... Michael Prince or whoever was in charge of that was doing it just to keep it for posterity. I don't know. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, there were there was talk, I remember, of that particular concert that was always being filmed, interestingly, for the film buffs out there, with some of the world's first ever digital high-definition cameras. And so he was filming that for potential home video release so maybe they were capturing the audio just to have enough there to be able to chop between live and CD when they needed to if they were going to release it. I don't really know, but it sounds pretty pretty atrocious. We've heard conflicting reports of whether it could be somebody working at the estate who's working with this footage and audio 
not being careful enough and it coming out. We've heard sort of reports of maybe it's a collaborator who had access to it that's shared it with a fan that's put it out. We don't really know how it came out. But what are your thoughts in general of whoever is responsible allowing this to come out? Oh, it'd be interesting to know their motive. And I would only ever like be guessing or speculating and it would probably be not accurate as to what that motive could be. But maybe it was for money. That seems to be the motive behind most dodgy stuff. So I don't know, like it's not putting it out for a positive reason doesn't seem to add up really. I guess, you know, you can go back and like you said for posterity, go, well, this is the reality of it. But in the end, I saw the history concert twice. I loved it. It was amazing. It was an incredible experience for me and for some other people that I know that saw it live and people still talk about how that was an incredible show when it toured Australia in 96. So regardless of what happened to create the show and the the makeup of it, I still have incredibly fond memories of seeing the history tour. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm a bit sad that it's out, this this audio is out to be honest because like when you listen to it in context and you understand that he was unwell at the time and wasn't in a place where he should have been doing it really health-wise, when you understand that it makes sense and you can listen to it and go, okay, they're the reasons. A lot of people that are going to be watching it are probably people that are younger fans maybe who don't know that. And then it just gets, you know, the video might be recommended to them through an algorithm on YouTube and then they watch it and they're going to be like, oh my God, like he sounds really, really, really bad. And they wouldn't understand that it was never intended to be heard by an audience in the first place. But how many people is that actually going to be? Who knows? Like this isn't going to be, and you know what, thousands is not that big a number in the grand scheme of things. Like this isn't going to be something that radio stations are playing for other thousands of people. This isn't going to be like the number one most viewed video or whatever it is ever. So mm, maybe not, I but think it wouldn't MJ take MJ fans really are the only people that would make this a big deal. Like I'm not so sure on that. I could totally see like a TikTok video coming out. Look how bad Michael really sounded. How long has this audio been out then? Uh, I think maybe a month. Okay, Mm. so where is the TikTok video? It hasn't happened yet. Yeah, but lots of things become famous later on TikTok that aren't famous right when they come out. Like, Yeah, but also how much positive stuff with MJ music and iconography is on TikTok. Yeah, I I love all of that stuff. And all of that stuff's great that it's out. But I've got to ask myself, would Michael have wanted this out? Of course not. No. So how is it good that it's out? It's not, really. So, yeah. Because he was a showman. He created stuff and using okay just like a a general term the magic of creativity he gave us all of that amazing stuff that made us fall in love with him and his work yeah okay so history tour is an example but you know you can go back to all of the videos or any of his songs like he created all of that stuff and it's presented in a final package the final package is not how it was during creation like he didn't sit there at a microphone 
and just record a whole song from start to finish and that is what is ended up on the album like you and your podcast it's all pieced together and clips and like there'll be one word taken from take 175 to cover the word in take 3052 and then verse one might have three sentences from take three five seven and nine and like he created all of that takes after take after take when he was recording the video like he put all of this together so the final product that we all love is still there and that's why we love him we didn't love him because he used you know a certain angle for this shot and then on another day of recording a different angle from this shot and a vocal take from this month and then a vocal take from 15 years before Mm. because none of that matters Mm. i i I agree that the big picture is is always going to be pristine because that's what he created that's what you know his legacy sealed in that way which is good but i I still feel bad that this stuff's out I, i don't think he would have wanted it it doesn't need to be out. Like, no. what is people's motive for sharing? Like, it? what kind of fan wants to see that? Like, yeah, sure. I was curious. I was like, I always wondered. Yeah, what does it really sound like? But then the minute you hear like twenty seconds of it, it's like, oh, this shouldn't be out. This he wouldn't have wanted this. He was not well. And so, there, at some point in time, there would have been a fan who also had to make that decision before leaking it. What it's kind of like, um sadistic i think we know what kind of people yeah i think we kind of know what kind of person would make that decision yeah it's sad but but anyway i'm glad you're uh thinking big picture and it's kind of um yeah hopefully it doesn't kick off somewhere and get a lot of views anyway these are the kind of things i don't understand why the estate doesn't take down actually they're very good at taking down (laughs) you know uploads from fans that might be reinterpretations or whatever that are his actual art, but not this kind of stuff. Like this is the kind of thing they should be all over taking down everywhere. Mate, their their strategy of what they take down or what the algorithm takes down automatically, I don't get it at all. There's like channels out there on YouTube that just basically have his full albums and stuff that is just up there. That's weird. And oh, they'll title it like stranger in moscow remade and i'm like well what does that even mean i know like why (laughs) why and they're getting you know all of those views and probably you know maybe it's monetized and maybe you know it's monetized but the money goes to sony anyway i don't know but yeah then they go and target like remixes and stuff which they target the people that put stuff out that is always better quality more entertaining and a positive influence for his music and legacy compared to the people that are actually just ripping off stuff. Agreed. Interestingly, along those lines of the Munich performance, there also was another weird but good, I guess, release, or sorry, leak of Billie Jean Uh, that came out, it was kind of like a mix between some of the footage we had seen before and new angles and new quality or or higher quality than we'd seen of that Billie Jean performance from Munich 97. And I think I sent it to you when it came out. did, yes. And the sound mix sounds really good as well. It didn't use the live vocals. It used the CD vocals. But what did you think watching that? Yeah, it took me back, man. 
took me back to 90, November 1996, in, <laughs> especially in Perth, where I was front row for the history show. Uh, took me back, and that was cool. It was cool to see. Yeah, I'd was, nev- I thought I thought quite well put together. Yeah, I'd never seen that quality myself uh, of that show, and it was something definitely to behold, visually at least. I mean, I don't really know what that was there for, what it was being prepared for, whether it was a leak from the estate, whether it was like a, I had heard that maybe it was a test version of something that they were working on for release, but who knows, but it definitely looked pretty incredible. It was shot really well. I know you've had voices on your amazing podcast before that wants to burn the history tour and <laughs> never have it released, but I'd like if there was a, a Blu-ray of that, high quality streaming thing of that show i would be sitting there and watching that for sure yeah i'm i'm sort of in the middle like, of it take me back it should come out but it's how it comes out that matters like i personally wouldn't be releasing the history tour with a lot of fanfare in cinemas like i would the bad tour whereas i don't see the harm of putting it up in really great quality on youtube or Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's how it comes out that really matters. If they're going to do big press announcements and press releases saying this is one of Michael's best concerts and put it in the cinema, and I think then they're opening themselves up to some criticism if they do that. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Agree. Agree. Whereas if they did that with the Triumph Tour or the Bad Tour, they wouldn't have that. Yeah. Or if they just dropped it. Like, I saw the literally it was the DVD playing at a cinema for MJ50. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was for the MJ50 birthday celebrations around the world. It was literally the DVD. So 4-3 ratio, <laughs> DVD quality <laughs> on a big cinema screen. And there were like, it was packed as well. Like that's where I met Jesse and Jermaine, my mates, uh, a girlfriend here in Perth, Sierra, you know, met them there as well. And I think we were pretty much very close to the front, if not the front row. And you can imagine the quality on a cinema screen, okay? Especially if you're really close to it as well. <laughs> and still, it was it was a great night. It was good fun. And I would totally go and see a MJ concert on a cinema screen again because it was good fun. Yeah, I mean, I'd see any MJ concert. <laughs> Especially one that was actually... That was really like a well-edited creation. All right, moving on to the next news topic. This one is, I think, a little bit more up your alley than mine, so I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. You're much more of a comic book guy than I am. I'm I'm not really into the whole Marvel DC comic book world. But I haven't read this. You haven't read? Oh, you haven't read this one? No, and I haven't watched it either, so. All right, so this is a story about Michael Jackson's desire to be involved in a particular comic book franchise. So author Neil Gaiman, who wrote the comic book The Sandman, among many other great works like American Gods and more recently Norse Mythology, in the 90s, there was a a book that came out, I think it was the 90s, called The Sandman, a, a comic book. And he was involved to some degree, in some of the early talks of adapting that particular comic book. So, you know, there's it's got a really long history. At one point, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was going to be doing it. At another point, Warners were involved. And and back in those early days of it coming out, and it's P.S., it's already come out since then. So more recently on Netflix, it's already come out as a series. 
But back in the 90s, in those early years of talking about it coming out, when Warners were involved, apparently Michael Jackson contacted an executive at Warners and said specifically that he wanted to play a character called Morpheus from the comic book. And I've never read it, but I find it really interesting. Again, in those mid-90s years, Michael seemed to be very, very involved in wanting to be in films. Like, obviously, he's in Ghosts, but we have all those stories about him wanting to buy Marvel or wanting to be in the movie Hook that Steven Spielberg put out. You know, obviously, he never quite got to realize that dream of wanting to be in films or to create films uh, to that level. But it's interesting to hear that here's another one that he wanted to be in. So, like I said, I haven't read The Sandman. I haven't watched the Netflix series. I've heard good things about it. I've heard good things about this adaptation. And I believe this is actually the first film adaptation of this uh, book, this graphic novel. Just looking it up on IMBD now, Morpheus is like looks like absolutely the main character. So I do not know much about the character. So in the Netflix adaptation, he is played by Tom Sturridge. But yes, Morpheus it also has other names called The Dream, Waniros, The Cat of Dreams. So apparently this character has sort of multiple sides to him or aliases regardless i don't know anything about it so i can't speak on that but that would have been interesting that would have been pretty cool to see i think yeah obviously it didn't happen and it didn't happen for various reasons not only did mj obviously not get to play that part but it wasn't adapted and from what i heard there were some terrible scripts offered up for it at the time but i actually have seen Neil Gaiman I've met him in person I've actually seen got invited to watch it was like a um what do they call it like when the the person is up on stage and they do like an hour hour and a half presentation on their work Q&A it was like a big Q&A session it wasn't part of a con or anything it was like a ticketed event Neil Gaiman's assistant gave me tickets and he was amazing. It was an incredible, he's obviously an incredible storyteller. Mm. And he has a huge bibliography of work that stretches decades, like stuff that's impacted pop culture and things like that. So to hear him speak, and he did a reading of a children's book that he had written inspired by his kids. And that was pretty cool as well. And it was a beautiful stage with like sort of all these dangling light globes all around him that sort of shifted in intensity and faded in and out subtly it was a beautiful stage set up and yeah it was it was really cool really cool an amazing amazing creative genius yeah well i mean it would have been cool for him and and michael to have had some kind of involvement together through the sandman but obviously wasn't meant to be so michael jackson's birthday happened late August and the estate put on a event as they normally do in Las Vegas connected to MJ one and living all the way in Australia, obviously Q and I, you know, weren't able to go, (laughs) but um, we do know some uh, friends of the show who were able to go and we're very lucky to have an audio submission now from Jenny Winings, who has been on a previous episode of the MJ cast before telling her amazing stories of meeting Michael Jackson. She's also in square one. 
And we're going to hand over now to her to hear about what happened at the Vegas birthday celebration. Jenny, take it away. Hello, everybody. It is Jenny Winings here. I was previously on the MJ cast episode 104, which came out actually on June 25th, 2019. I can't believe it's already been over three years. I was recording this because I was in Vegas for the birthday celebrations, the fan event, and it was the first time I actually went. Um, I've known it's been going on every year, but last year I was out of the country and I'm just always traveling and I was finally able to go. So I thought it was really, really amazing to see all the fans and all the support for Michael over the entire weekend. Um, I got there Saturday morning. I flew in. My boyfriend drove down from California, so him and I kind of just hung out on Saturday. And Sunday uh, was amazing. We did the went to the Q&A with Greg Philigaines. That was awesome. I wish it was longer, and I wish they would have asked him more, more questions about, I don't know, the insight on working with Michael. It was really funny when he started to talk about how the lean happened in Smooth Criminal, and Karen cut him off and said, don't tell secrets. And everybody in the audience was like, well, that's been public for... 30 years now. So it was really funny. So, and then after that, we went to the show that night, which was amazing. Of course, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, please, if you ever get to Vegas, go there. The first thing you do, go see the show, then go to the shop. So many amazing or so much amazing merchandise in the shop. There were big Al was there who was pretty much, except for, um, talking to Prince and Prince's girlfriend, who is amazing. Big Al was the highlight. Um, we stood in line with him waiting to get in the show, and he told us so many stories about working for Michael. He was amazing to talk to, genuinely cared about Michael. I mean, at one point, uh, we took a picture together, and right beforehand, we were both crying from a story he told, and then we took a picture, and you can totally tell in the picture we were crying, but uh, his love, he genuinely loved and cared for Michael, so it was amazing to talk to him. Michael Bush was there. I didn't talk to him or anything, but I saw him there. Prince was there. He was amazing, like always. He is, I think, one of the most amazing people alive. I don't know. The way he interacts with all his dad's fans, he never seems annoyed or rushed or too busy to talk to someone. I mean, he is just a phenomenal human being. I'm trying to remember. I think after the show, we just went back to the hotel. And then Monday was the brunch. So I went to that, met my friends there. It's really nice. They had a really nice setup for the brunch. They had like mimosas and other um, like juices you could get with champagne. They had lots of food to eat all set up. Prince came back and was talking to everybody. And I know they talked about all the uh, diamond and platinum selling records and everything, but the entire time that happened, I was talking to Molly, Prince's girlfriend, because my friend introduced us and I mentioned something about staying at Neverland or something, and she wanted to hear tons of my stories. So it was pretty awesome to be talking to her about her boyfriend's dad, because you know, obviously she never met him. So I didn't pay attention to any of the announcements that were going on, because her and I were just having a conversation for like 25 minutes by ourselves. But yeah, that was that was pretty much it. Again, it's so amazing for everyone to come together and to celebrate Michael's life and career and music and, you know, being in Ohio, obviously we don't have events like that here. So it's great. And I saw some friends I hadn't seen since 15 to 20 years ago. I mean, just the friends that I have in my life from Michael, it's just amazing. So 
I am so, so glad that I finally made it out there. Hopefully, I'll be back next year. I hear they're going to be doing something big next year because it would be Michael's 65th birthday. So that is uh, my story. If I think of anything else, I'll be sure to let you know. But keep loving Michael because he definitely deserves it. Thank you. Bye. I love how you've gone old school, Jamin, like back in my day when we had correspondence with their segments. <laughs> flashback, flashback. Cool, cool. And now we're going to go to a cool remix that I found, okay, for our music break. <laughs> <laughs> and then get deleted from Spotify again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um. Thank you, Jenny. That was awesome. I love Jenny. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate your time and putting that together. And uh, for those that were there hope they had a great time and for those that did their own mj birthday celebrations around the world well done keep doing it if you haven't done that it's very easy just organize on a facebook group or on twitter or whatever just like put it out there let's do a little birthday lunch afternoon catch up dinner picnic or whatever let's have a little catch up and maybe rattle a tin for some charity donations and then donate the charity <laughs> donations. It's that easy. All right. So uh, thank you, Jenny. That's a great roundup. Really cool to hear what happened at the Vegas event. Kingvention is happening right now as we record this as well. So probably too early for us to get a roundup on how that all went, but also looks amazing. It's very heartwarming to see so many events happening around the world every year. Brad Sunberg's event as well. Yeah, it's good. Good Michael being honoured in that way. Shout out to the organisers of Convention. Like, credit where credit is due. This is something that the estate should be doing. They are not. The convention is, like, a incredible quality. What they're able to put together blows my mind every time. So credit where credit is due. Well done to the organisers of Convention. Yeah, yeah. Got to second that as well. And also to all of our listeners who are there at the moment, uh, we've already received some pictures from people that are wearing their MJ cast merch there, like T-shirts and stuff. And Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool to see that coming through. So thank you very much to those listeners who are repping the MJ cast at Kingvention. Very, very neat. All right. So next bit of news is Thriller 40. So we've spoken about Thriller 40 on a previous episode. Uh, regarding the announcement and everything like that. I think that was the last episode I was on. Yeah, it probably was actually. With Damien. Yeah, yeah. Since then, obviously we haven't received the product yet, but since then we've heard little bits more about it. So they're doing a thing, the estate are doing a thing where every week, I think it's a Friday, it's like the end of the week, they put out a new part of a graphic that they've made. So it's like a word art type thing. And there's all the unreleased demo song names coming on it for whatever disc all the demos are coming or will be released on for Thriller 40. And and every week they reveal a new song title on this word art that reveals what is going to be on this disc. And so far they've released two. We've actually found out a third one today, which I'll get into soon, how we found that out. Ooh. Yeah. The first one is really exciting. So it's the demo. is the previously unreleased, never-before-heard demo version of Behind the Mask. Now, is it actually never-before-been-heard or is it an estate never-before-been-heard? No, it's a real never-before-been-heard. It's wow. not a thing where it's been on YouTube forever. It's an actual no-one's-ever-heard-this-thing. 
Okay. And the title is? Behind the Mask. Demo. I'm excited. So this is, from what I understand, and I don't know the whole ins and outs of this. I mean, there's people in the community that know a lot more about this, like Damien Shields and different, you know, Mike Smallcomb and all those kind of people. But all I know is that Michael recorded Behind the Mask with Yellow Magic Orchestra and it was meant to come out on Thriller, but there were copyright concerns around it and it wasn't able to come out on the album. I think there were concerns from the Yellow Magic Orchestra. And so it wasn't a thing where the song was rejected because it wasn't as good, like some of the other songs that never made it on, like, you know, um, Got the Hots and that kind of stuff. It, was, it wasn't put on because of contractual issues. So I have got really high hopes that the quality of this song is going to be excellent. Um, we've heard the version on the Michael album that was remixed by one of the estate co-executors, John McLean. And I was never a huge fan of it with the, with all the dangerous crowd noise going on in the song. And it was all a bit, you know, can we just hear what it was like left by Michael? And so finally we get to hear that. I'm excited. I am very excited to hear Michael's version of this song. I hope that it is because it sounded like it was basically almost ready to go onto the album. So I'm hoping it's like pretty much a finished, done deal, locked in, finished track. Yeah, I think there's a high chance of that because yeah. the vocals sound oh the like vocals they they they're so they're top not they're like a plus yeah. standard we're not talking in the back here <laughs> we're talking top tier top shelf a plus finished michael jackson vocals so i'm assuming that the rest of the song must sound pretty great as well yeah and when that goddamn mess of the michael album came out those years ago with all of that bs on it the the track behind the mask that was actually released to fans on the Michael album, his vocals brought me to tears. Yeah. That song brought me to tears. Absolutely. Because that was, that was yes, it wasn't his version of the song, but that was stellar level MJ vocals. And it's one of my favorites. I love, I love Behind the Mask. So I'm so excited to get another version of that, especially his version. Yeah. And, and I think that it probably, you know, if I had to guess, it's probably not going to sound that different from the version we've heard. Like I'm sure there's more modernized sounds and things going on in the version we've got. But if you think about the other John McClane collaborations with the song This Is It, where he got the brothers in to do the backing vocals on that with the orchestra, if you think about Love Never Felt So Good, uh, not the Justin Timberlake version, the other version, like what he seems to do as a producer is, yes, he'll add new elements, but... He does it with the exception of the dangerous sound uh, crowd noise. He seems to do it in a pretty subtle way, which just brings out what the song did sound like, but maybe in a more modern take rather than completely remixing it Timberland style. So I am really keen to hear Michael's final version that he worked on, but also to to kind of determine how different does it sound to the one that John McClane finished up for the uh, the Michael album. Mm. Surprised they've actually led with that because, like, I don't know what's going to be better than it, to be honest. I I don't think there'll be anything better than it. So why would they lead with that and then everything else that follows up is like, eh, 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 meh. I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. The timing for that. I was was surprised that was the first track reveal. 
Yeah, it's the second one that really let me down. It was like, because I thought, wow, if they're going to lead with that, that must mean number two or three, they might even have something better in the bag as well. <laughs> and nope. they don't. So, <laughs> number two, the second song they announced is called She's Trouble. And that's a song that was written by Terry Britton, Sue Schifrin, and William Livesey and presented to Quincy for Thriller. It was demoed but never included. They weren't happy with the the song. I mean, this song's been out in the community for 10 years or more. It's We've got it already. I don't know if it's the same version as the version we've heard. Sometimes when the estate releases demos, like Blue Gangster is a good example. I think when they released Blue Gangster as a part of Escape, it was slightly different to the ones we'd had before and um, uh, some other songs that they've done like that. So it might be a more completed version. I don't know. The version that we've always heard, which we've referred to as Trouble, not She's Trouble, it sounds pretty complete to me. But um, yeah, I'm not eh, not that excited about that. It sounds to me like it's kind of very similar to those other songs from that era, like um, Got the Hots and Nightline. Eh, It's not not really my, my thing. It's a bop. Yeah. It's an 80s bop, but didn't make the album for a reason yeah the versions you sent me just to remind me i prefer i think what would be the older version yeah where more completed sort of vocals in it i love that sort of it's very 80s which is good fun it'll be interesting to hear yeah it'll be good to have in good quality the completionist part of me is like I'm, I'm actually not on the f- side of there's some people that are like, oh, demos should never come out. I'm not like that. I, I like that demos come out as long as they are presented as such, not finished tracks, yeah. and that they are released in the, the latest and fullest version and as high quality as possible. And it'll be good to have it on there. It was just a bit disappointing, I think, to see it as number two, where I think we know of some other songs that maybe could have been there, but that's cool. It'll be, uh, it is what it is, hey? And what might be number three? Yeah, so this is nuts that this is going on. But what's happened in the last 24 hours is fans have discovered that the Sony servers, um, I don't know whether they're unprotected, but what's going on is you can basically type in a URL into your browser guessing what the next song is going to be. So I don't know what the URL is exactly, but you can change like a date in it like www.michaeljackson.com slash whatever, and then you put the date in for the next release and then it'll show you what the release is. So you can only, apparently you can only do it like three or four days in advance. So some fans have done that and seen that the third release is going to be the song The Toy and it even shows you the graphic and everything and you can't do it for the fourth song yet, but presumably unless they plug up this uh, (laughs) bug thing that they've got, Uh, you're going to be able to do that again in a week's time for the fourth song. But we now know that the third song is The Toy. And The Toy, we've spoken about pretty extensively on the MJ cast before. It is a song that dates back to 1981. Michael originally recorded it for a Richard Pryor movie of the same name, but it was never included. And it ended up becoming Best of Joy. And that's also a song that came out on the Michael album. And it is probably, I don't know, it's it's a contender for the Michael Jackson song with the longest journey, maybe, in his career. Maybe it even beats out Earth Song in that way, because we know that he recorded it in 1981 for the Richard Pryor movie. And we also know that it was one of, if not the last, 
full vocal performance that Michael gave in a recording sense in that he recorded the version of Best of Joy that we have just mere months or weeks before he passed away in a bathroom, in a hotel bathroom with Michael Prince. So that's like, you know, that's a pretty, that's 20, 20 something years um, between the first recording and the final recording. It's very, I mean, I've heard it. It's very, very similar to vocally. It's a ve- And that's the amazing thing about it, actually, is how similar vocally it is between 1981 and 2009. It sounds like Michael's voice, really. I mean, we think about people maintaining their vocal quality over their careers and how some artists, you know, their voice changes or declines in quality. I mean, one thing I think we could all say about Michael Jackson is that his voice was pristine right up until the end. It sounded just angelic. And the 1981 version is is it sounds very pure. Uh, it's a very basic sounding song. Like it's got like a a drum track to it that's a synthesized drum track. It sounds to me like a very similar drum track to um if you've ever heard the song by Marvin Gaye, "Sexual Healing." I don't know if you know that song, but yeah, everyone the, knows that song. Yeah, everyone knows that song. It's but the drum song. track to that sounds really similar to what's going on on the toy. There's a really nice sparse kind of key arrangement. I don't know whether it's a Fender Rhodes or something like that, but it's a, a really nice sounding key arrangement. And then there's Michael's vocal over the top with some, um, it sounds like there's some reverb on it or something going on, but it's a much simpler version of Best of Joy. Still complete with complete lyrics and everything, but the the, the chorus lyrics are different. So whereas in the song Best of Joy, where, where Michael sings, I am your joy, your best of joy. In the original version, he sings, I am your boy, I am your toy. So different lyrics, obviously about a different thing, but uh, similar melodically uh, and structurally to the last version that we heard. Not sure if I've got much to add to that. It's not one of my favorite tracks. I think best of joy is a way better version. One thing I was talking to Charlie about earlier today, we had a little phone call where I told him about this. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, but he expressed some concern just around how tasteful it is to release a song with those lyrics, considering the allegations. Now, I know that Michael's intention in those lyrics would have not been anything like the allegations, but do you think what do you think about that with all of the allegations happening and leaving Neverland and the estate releasing their first real major product since then? Yeah, but they can do that for so many of Michael's song titles or song lyrics. They could go back through. If they want to do that, they can apply that to countless lyrics and titles of tracks yeah. and make it a sinister thing. So whatever. It's not a thing for me. Yeah. Okay. Can I scroll down yet? No, 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 no okay. scrolling. You're listening. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay um. Here's the next news topic, the one that you don't know about that I've been waiting to tell you. Now, you're going to have to go back through memory lane a little bit to make sense oh, God. of this one. My memory is not good, man. Okay. But back in the day mm-hmm. when you were a day-to-day, you know, member of the MJ cast and, and you were yep. handling all of our social media and all of our comms yep. and all of our emails- yep. You had some interactions with two wonderful, wonderful people who are from Virginia, a mother and daughter called Cheryl and June. Yes. You remember them? Yeah. Okay. Well, hold on to your emails off them. Yeah. Because these two incredible people who are huge fans of the MJ cast, they have, since those early emails you've had with them, their love 
for what we do and for Michael has just grown more and more and more. And they email us pretty regularly and I'm terrible at replying to them, but at least is good at that. But I read all of their emails and I'm always amazed at everything they have to say and all the photos they send through. But this mother-daughter duo, Cheryl and June from Virginia, they have, I don't know how to say this, but it's pretty cool. They have spent two and a half years making a podcast series about Michael Jackson and about the allegations. Whoa. Yes. That is a mammoth thing to tackle. Wow. It's huge. The scope is huge. And so they've spent two and a half years doing it. It's called Michael Jackson Case for Innocence. (gasps) They have even taken it to the level of hiring professional voice actors (gasps) to be involved in the podcast series. The first season of it has 20 episodes. It covers all four cases. Um, June and Cheryl also narrate it as well as some voice acting. And there have been many editors and listeners that have helped them craft the podcast to make it listenable and accessible to a general audience. They've got a website coming for it. They've got a trailer dropping on Tuesday. We've heard the first episode of it and it is really special. I'm blown away. Oh, my God. Cheryl and June, this is, I'm like, I did not know about this before. (laughs) Oh, my God. What a blast from the past. And what, like, amazing contribution. And I, I sort of can picture from some very limited experience the amount of work and effort to put something like this together. From what you've just described, I'm quite moved, actually. I'm actually quite moved, and I will definitely be checking this out. Oh, wow. Wow, that's so exciting. That's really cool. That's because, you know what, that might not be something that a general music person is going to tune in and listen to, but as we know from experience... And even Reese at the MJ birthday lunch I went to here in Perth this year, there was a new girl there and fans are being created all the time, even in the last year, even in the last two years. So someone is going to come along this and part of their research and that's, trust me, literally from firsthand experience, I heard the story just weeks ago. They're like, well, you know, I wanted to just research this myself. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to go and read court things. I'm going to go and listen to this. I'm going to watch this documentary. And people are going out there and learning. And then they're going, now I know. And now I know the truth. And this is incredible. This is going to be in that roster of resources for people. And that is such an amazing thing. Absolutely. And you know, um, on that note of people becoming fans, I mean, Cheryl and June discovered the MJ cast, which helped them learn about the allegations. And then they went on this journey. And this is what the first episode's all about. You are going to love it. The way that Cheryl discusses it, the, the, the episode, the series starts with Cheryl explaining that her daughter wanted to learn about And she was quite young at the time, but she obviously was a fan of Michael and doing like, you know, Halloween dress ups as Michael and all this kind of stuff, but then wanted to know what is this about the allegations? What are the allegations? And then Cheryl had to try to find a way to explain that to her young daughter 
about what these heinous allegations were and why they're a part of Michael's legacy, unfortunately. And then the podcast sort of goes on this journey of mother and daughter explaining what these are. And then they then they go on this journey together of trying to research them and find out the truth for themselves. It is just really good. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so happy to hear this. That's an amazing thing. Well done, Cheryl and June. Every success to you. I'm, I'm excited. That's very cool. Yeah, so keep tuned, listeners, to our social media because we're going to be getting information out there about this. Cheryl and June, they're they're very private people. They don't even have social media. We'll do our best to get the information out there about it. If you check our show notes, I'm sure we'll have a link to somewhere where you can find out more. We're just so appreciative of them. They're just such special people. We've got, you know, over the years, they've sent us so many photos of – you know, their lives together as mother and daughter and them being Michael fans. And it it feels like we've kind of watched June grow up in a way because- Yeah, well, that's, yeah, you know, we started the MJ cast in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, and people have, that's, you know, thinking back, that is a while ago now. Yeah, it is. A lot has happened in seven years, right? People have grown up and been through some stuff and- Like, and it's weird how your brain doesn't like really- compute that kids can grow up so like a few years ago i got this wonderful photo of june she was dressed up as michael in smooth criminal outfit for halloween and then in my head i'm just thinking oh that's just what she always looks like and then you know her mom sent a more recent photo a couple of weeks ago and it's like oh wow she's way bigger now than she was it's very cool it's very cool we're very lucky as the mj cast to have listeners like this who have been on this journey with us and now it's kind of reversed I feel like now, you know, us as the MJ cast team, we now get to go on a journey with them as they launch their contribution to the community. And I can't yeah. wait to see where it goes. We feel very lucky. So uh, I want to look forward to this. That's that's exciting. I'm, I'm just going to give a shout out to Hill, who I know will be tuning into this episode. She was the fan I was talking about that only recently in like recent 12, 18 two years has become a mega MJ fan. Like, you know, when you go from like zero to a hundred yeah. with something. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Hill is, Hill is in that hundred stage right now. Like, you know, where you are that just everything MJ related just makes you, you know, butterflies and so excited and emotional and all of that. So Hill is living in that stage of the fandom at the moment, which is so exciting. And yeah, she gave huge props to the MJ cast podcast. And I know Belle will be tuned in as well. So shout out to Belle. But yeah, and Julie and Justine and Michelle that were all at our birthday lunch in Perth. But yeah, it was it was an amazing story just to hear that and that the MJ cast was a part of that. How people are like, well, I'm going to go research. What are the resources out there? And yeah, what we created is actually helping people learn. I love that. That's so cool. So I'm so excited for Cheryl and June and I'm excited to hear this. So huge congratulations and love to you ladies and well done. That's that's amazing. Thanks for that surprise, Jamin. That's all right, buddy. Let's now cut to Cheryl and June talking about their new podcast that's about to come out, which covers all of the different allegations against Michael Jackson in the 20-part first season of Michael Jackson, Case for Innocence. 
Hi, I'm Jcast listeners. This is Cheryl. My daughter June and I are excited to tell you about the podcast we're ready to launch, called the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm June, and my parents and I live in Virginia, in the U.S. I'm 14 now, and I've been a huge Michael Jackson fan since I discovered him on an 80s playlist when I was 10. I enjoy all his music, including the Jackson Five and the Jacksons, and I love his music videos. Some of my favorite songs are "You Can Cry on My Shoulder," "Another Part of Me," "Why You Want to Trip on Me," and "Little Susie." My favorite video and choreography is definitely "Ghosts," and my favorite MJ book is "Dancing the Dream." The MJ cast is one of my favorite podcasts, and my mom and I have listened to all the episodes. The History Album Roundtable was one of my favorites, and I love the news updates. When Leaving Neverland came out in early 2019, with the sex abuse allegations, it was really only Michael Jackson fans who could truly understand how much this upset my life. I was beyond shocked that all the TV reviews just accepted the allegations as true. After this TV show, I felt self-conscious and nervous about wearing Michael Jackson T-shirts and talking about him all the time. A lot of the people around me just took this TV series as true. My husband and I were worried that June might be idolizing a child molester. So I was determined to research all the evidence I could find. But as Michael Jackson fans well know, after months of studying the sex abuse allegations, I discovered that the evidence not only didn't support Jackson's guilt, but overwhelmingly supported his innocence, which is an important distinction to make. Because almost as bad as those who presume Jackson is guilty are those who say we can never know for sure, which I find wholly unfair to Michael Jackson's legacy, given this mountain of evidence. Although I was relieved that my mom's research validated my beliefs in Michael's innocence, I found myself even more upset at all the misinformed people around me and in the media. After an upsetting experience at summer camp, when someone called Michael a horrible person, I came back home and told my mom I wanted to do something to educate people about the evidence. And that determination is what led to the release of this podcast three and a half years later. In season one, there are twenty episodes covering the four sex abuse cases against Michael Jackson. We'll be releasing episodes weekly on Tuesdays, starting late September or early October. Season two will be about eight episodes covering how the personal side of Michael Jackson supports his innocence, including the stories from friends, colleagues, and his family background. Because of my research background, it was my priority that this podcast be fully sourced. So as each episode is released, listeners can find all our references on our website, MichaelJacksonCaseForInnocence.com. Included on this source list are the many impressive fan sites that have collected court documents over the years, which was helpful to my research. My mom and I hope that Michael Jackson fans will like the podcast and find our website resources helpful. But our longer-term goal is to reach people who aren't Michael Jackson fans. While these sex abuse cases against Michael Jackson are disheartening because of all the deception involved, they're also fascinating on many levels and should appeal to anyone with an interest in true crime and the justice system. We hope that part of the appeal to a more general audience is that my own motivation going into the research was not as a fan, but as a parent highly motivated to making sure my daughter wasn't hero worshiping a child predator. So my goal was to provide a fact-based podcast. That I would have wanted to hear as a parent of a fan trying to figure out if these allegations were true. So June and I would love to have you tune in and subscribe to the podcast, and we'd really appreciate any reviews to help get the word out. 
especially reviews mentioning the fair and balanced tone of the show. We also welcome any fan input, and if there's any corrections, we'll note them on our website. Feel free to connect with us on Twitter at Case for Innocence, which is Case the number four Innocence. You can also contact us through our website, MichaelJacksonCaseForInnocence.com. Thanks to the MJ Cast for giving us this opportunity to promote our show. Isn't that wonderful to hear from Cheryl and June? I'm blown away. I, I'm really quite moved by it. That's so cool. Very. I'm so proud of them. So cool. Not long to wait. Now, Key, you talked a little bit earlier just before about your friend being in stage 100 of, <laughs> of their, you know, Michael Jackson, yeah. band, zero to 100. I mean, how do we classify ourselves at this point? We're not at 100 anymore, are we? No, we're not. But that doesn't take away that we have been at 100 and that stage of our being at 100 was a big part of our life. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, it's it's funny to think about hey but sometimes like i definitely don't put as much energy into the michael world as i did when i was a teenager like when i was younger at all and it's more of like day-to-day little bits here and there still keeping up with the news still enjoying his art obviously but i don't know it's it's different isn't it it's to me i sort of equate it to you know you went to your primary school from maybe grade one to seven. Yeah. I did all my primary school at the one school. And that was a big part of your life and a big part uh, of your formative years and a big part of your growing up and what made you who you are now. So I think about Michael a bit like that. That's a big part of my life. It's something, you know, you don't think about and you don't interact with, you know, your primary school or your high school maybe that was a huge part of your life. You don't interact and have that as a huge part of your daily life now, but it is still part of your formation and who you are and what made you who you are. So I sort of think of Michael like that in a way. Yeah, I think that's Is that a, a stupid analogy? Oh, no, no, no. It's a good way to think of it. Like, I think for me, it's kind of like, it is exactly like you just said, except that, because we do the MJ cast like that, it's probably the MJ cast podcast that keeps me tied day to day to what's going on more. Like if we didn't have the podcast, I don't know if I would check in every day with what was going on on the news and that kind of thing. Yes. And and when I was with the MJ cast for five years, that was absolutely a not even day to day. It was like an hour to an hour. hour. <laughs> <laughs> Every waking hour, there was something related to that for five years. <laughs> and at that time of my life, I needed that. And I had that to give. And I wanted to give that back to MJ. And I did that. And for five years, so I don't, I'm not at that point now where I would need to do that. But back then I sort of did need something like that and I did want that and I wanted to give back. And I felt that I did through the MJ cast and what we inspired in people and still do, which is so cool. Yeah, that's the thing. You so, still do. Don't, yeah. don't say past tense. Your episodes that you're on that you contributed to, all the amazing interviews that you did, they're all still being downloaded in the thousands now. Yeah. That's that's blows my mind. <laughs> to listeners that hear them now, that's not like a seven year ago thing. That's a thing for them right now. Yeah. Today. 
Yeah. So that's sort of, you know, the music. And also I've grown as a person in, you know, I remember the only music I used to listen to back as a teenager on my Walkman were, I, all I had was MJ cassettes and Janet cassettes, Rhythm Nation on cassette. That is all I listened to at that time in my life. Whereas you flip that now. Eurovision extraordinaire. Yeah, seriously. And music in other languages like pop and bops and bangers that are not even in in English that I adore. I have no idea what they're even singing about, but <laughs> I still love the music and I can still dance around to it while I'm doing the ironing or the house cleaning and stuff like that. So the music that I listen to now is like this humongous buffet instead of this tiny sample plate. But that sample plate is what gave me an appreciation for the huge taste of music that I love now and that I listen to. And let's be real, the Michael Jackson sample plate is the best little sample plate out there. Like it is <laughs> That's top quality. That's like top it's, sample plate. it's top sample quality, right? <laughs> but yeah, it's like a smaller part of my life and what I consume now. But that's not saying that I have not listened to what would be tens of thousands of hours of MJ stuff that I've consumed in my lifetime. So, yeah, I guess that is to say that listeners and fans of any stage of their journey are all still valued and important Michael Jackson fans, whether it's like day to day you're on the YouTube rabbit hole (laughs) watching like rare, rare, rare MJ footage or you're just, you know, occasionally... You know, a bit bit older, working hard at your job, dipping into a great Michael book every once in a while, that kind of thing. All still valued and important part of the MJ cast and Michael Jackson family. Totally. Okay. So, the main discussion topic for today, Q, is a documentary that has come out very recently called TMZ Investigates Who Really Killed Michael Jackson, directed by David Thies on Fox or for Fox. Here I was when you invited me, you're like, Q, come and do a news episode for me. There's still those problems with the birthday app. We need to get a show out. Come and do a news episode. (laughs) I'm like, oh, this is going to be so fun and exciting and such positive things. (laughs) And then the next day you threw this at me and I'm like, are you kidding? (laughs) Plot twist. It's not the most positive documentary on earth, is it? It was, well, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say that, but it was full on. It was heavy. It was dark. It's very dark. Yeah. It's a, it's a journey. Holy heck. Well, we're going to get into that journey. So this is directed by David Thies, came out on Fox. When I first heard about it, I was a little concerned with the people involved making it. Like I'm not the, the biggest Harvey Levin fan. Um, I know that TMZ and Harvey Levin have occasionally given some really fair coverage to Michael and the family, but there have also been some times where they really have not given fair coverage to the family, like with the whole Catherine quote-unquote kidnapping thing and after the Michael album came out, the stance they took. And, you know, like TMZ's had a bit of a checkered past when it's come to reporting on Michael Jackson. And so I was a bit wary of this and and we'll get into why soon, but yes, I still am pretty critical of some of the angles they took on it. But in essence, what is this? It's a it's a documentary which 
aims to cover the history of Michael's pain medication addiction right from the Pepsi burn days onwards through the Dangerous Tour and then centres mainly around the final weeks of Michael's life preparing for This Is It. Uh, It also discusses pretty extensively his plastic surgery and uh, how that related to his drug use. And they dig into all of the heavy, dark stuff, really. I guess we've got to preface by saying, Q, that neither you or I are doctors. (laughs) So we don't really understand a lot of this stuff. Yeah, there's some stuff that I really can't comment on. We did try and get a doctor. Shout out to Dr. Raj. But his schedule, as you can imagine, being a a doctor and a surgeon, was um, not very forgiving or flexible. So, yeah, there's some stuff that I'm not going to be able to really comment on directly. Of course. I can comment on a few things just as a viewer and as an MJ fan. Yeah, walk, walk me through what you thought. A lot of reservations with who made it. Yeah. I think it would have been interesting to see the reception to this and the openness of people, especially MJ fans, to watch this if it was not made by Fox and TMZ. Mm-hmm. That would be very interesting because TMZ have, you know, made the bed they lay in really with their reputation. That sort of colors your view, I guess, of what you think they're going to present. But then I was surprised at the seriousness they seemed to take in the investigation and what they presented and some of the talking heads that they got mm-hmm. but it was a it was a journey did we need it in the end or do you need to see it well that's going to be a very personal decision and whatever decision you make is yours and then i guess that's the right one yeah i mean i'm i'm personally very interested in this topic um i know it's a dark topic and it's not one You wake up in the morning and go, oh, I can't wait to learn more about that. But it's kind of, it is a fascinating part of Michael's overall story to me because it was his real journey and struggle and pain that he had to deal with day to day. So for me, that's interesting to learn about because then we can pull back the curtain and learn about the real man of of what his trials and tribulations were. I felt like they did a good job in humanizing Michael I didn't feel that it would have been easy for them to take the angle of like, oh, he was basically just like a narc addict, you know, we just, that's all he was really, you know, like just, he was, he diminished to be the, to just be an addict. I don't think that came across. I think they, it really, they did balance that with actually he was a superstar performer trying to put on an incredible show and he was under an immense amount of pressure and stress yeah. and he kind of resorted back to old habits as a way of handling that stress. Yeah. So did you think that or? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, that surprised me a lot. They took that angle actually and that they did sort of address his journey and that, you know, he did go into rehab at times and yeah. that was at the time that was successful and that, People were trying to help him as much as they could, i.e. his family. Liz Taylor. Liz Taylor. um, But they did touch on, you know, his family trying to help and other people trying to help. And they did what they could. 
But in the end, and again, this is something I cannot comment on from knowledge or experience or anything, so it is an uneducated opinion only, but someone who is an addict of something that is a really, really tough position and not something that is easy for them to deal with or for their family or for them to recover from. And sadly, some people don't recover from that. And it's an awful thing for an addict to be going through and not to be able to escape the grips of that disease. Absolutely. And I think they did a good job of distinguishing the types of treat. I don't even know if I would call it treatment, but the types of medication that Michael was receiving, like they did a really good job of laying out, okay, this is how often and why Michael was visiting Dr. Klein. And then this is why Michael was using a doctor of a nighttime over many years, not just with Murray, but over many years to try and respond to the effects of what were happening from the medication he was getting from Dr. Klein. So I thought they sort of put that in perspective really well. Yeah, that's something I didn't really know that the like the Demerol that he was getting from Klein during the day and from whatever the day, daytime doctors, I didn't know the effect that had on insomnia yes. and stuff like that. And this really clearly and simply laid that out. Yeah. So he was then dealing with that. But then at the night when those times came, and I don't think it was forever, I think it was at certain times of his life when the propovol came into the picture, which it was at the very end of his life, sadly, and that's what took him, that the propovol was sort of counter- acting and fighting against the insomnia by putting him under anesthesia to, and I'm using air quotes here, to sleep. Yeah. But it was the Demerol that had caused the need for that. And I think th that was really well laid out. Yeah. It's a well-constructed documentary in terms of here is what the topic is we're dealing with and here's how to understand it. So what you were saying earlier, I found, you know, really interesting about all the different talking heads and them being surprising, some of the talking heads. And, you know, I agree with that. Having people in there like Debbie Rowe, who's Michael's ex-wife, and interestingly, you know, also an employee of Dr. Klein, and then Kerry Anderson, who was Michael's head of security during those trial years. You've got the actual detective who was in charge of he was the lead investigator into michael's death detective orlando martinez you've got ed winter who was the assistant chief coroner that was looking into michael's death dr drew pinsky who's an addiction specialist and then probably one of the most interesting talking heads to me was dr harry glassman who was a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon who Michael approached to get another rhinoplasty and was turned away. So this doctor actually said, no, Michael, you've had too many. If you have another one, it could have further impact on your blood circulation and all of this. And he actually said no to Michael, which caused a bit of a an interesting relationship between the two of them and Michael trying to put a bit of pressure on him and then their relationship eventually breaking down. So hearing from all of these different people, from doctors, from specialists, from doctors who had involvement with Michael to his ex-wife, and I think all of them were well-selected and really were able to have the audience understand what Michael was going through. 
I think one of the names we haven't even mentioned yet, who is a major player in this documentary. And it's hard to see, especially the way that he presents himself and the way they present him is Dr. Conrad Murray. Oh, well, we haven't touched on that yet, but man, that's the bit that felt weird. So if you are going to watch this, listeners, you just need to be prepared for a couple of things. One, early on, they show MJ being loaded into the helicopter. So you see his corpse draped in a sheet, which might be very triggering and it's very hard to see and I couldn't really watch that. So that's something you need to be aware of if you are going to be watching this. They don't show any of the other photos though, do they? No, no, not that I saw. But then yes, prepare to be triggered because Conrad Murray features heavily in this. He gets a lot of airtime. Did it feel to you like TMZ had kind of like an agenda to say that Murray, although guilty of the crime, according to the courts, was less responsible than people have made out? Hugely. Mm. Definitely. It was a piece that really tries to throw a lot of sympathy on Conrad Murray. And that's a big part of where this documentary didn't fully sit well with me. Yeah. Because of that angle. And also giving him so much airtime. And he has still, to me, zero remorse and zero accountability in what he says and how he says it and what he displays. Yes, he's upset and he's sad and he'd love Michael. But to me, he doesn't show any remorse or personal accountability at all and trying to put the blame everywhere else except for himself. So I couldn't agree more. And I think that an interesting counterpoint to Murray is Debbie Rowe, who was Michael's ex-wife, is mother to two of his children and was an assistant. I can't remember what her role was, but she was an employee for Dr. Arnold Klein. And Dr. Klein was a dermatologist who I'd imagine was brought on board to work with Michael because of his skin conditions like vitiligo and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, but ended up being somebody who truly was administering a lot of opioids to Michael Jackson. And Debbie in this documentary very shockingly feels a lot of responsibility for what happened. Now, it's a bit strange in the doco. She, there's a title card or something there's a, that comes up on the screen that says, Debbie is happy to talk about Dr. Klein, but will not talk about Michael Jackson. Which credit to her. Credit to her for that. Well, credit to I her. don't know. I, I, I actually kind of wish she did mention Michael here and there because, I don't know, there's bits where she's talking about patients, quote unquote, patience. And I'm pretty sure she's meaning Michael, but she doesn't want to say Michael. So she's very remorseful though. So she's different to Conrad Murray in that way. She's crying on screen saying, I think there's one quote in it where she literally says, I was as bad as Dr. Klein was. (laughs) And she's saying how sorry she is that she had any kind of involvement in people passing away from the addictions that were allegedly enabled by Dr. Klein. So she, for her part, is taking full on responsibility and owning it 
And that stands in extreme contrast to Dr. Murray, who was like literally saying his whole argument, even in this documentary, is that he tried to wean Michael off propofol three days before he died and that Michael wanted more and so injected himself with propofol and killed himself. That's what his argument is in this documentary. Yeah. Notice they don't also ever mention any of the financial situation that Conrad Murray was in no, at they, the time. They ignore Not that. Not a single mention or allusion to that at all. Yeah. It was that pissed me off. The Debbie interview broke my heart, man. That was full on. That to see that was how full on. How heavily this weighs on her mind even now, that was real. Mate, all my love to Debbie. I've always loved and respected Debbie for who she is, you know, what she did for Michael and, you know, the mother of Prince in Paris and and making Michael's dream of fatherhood a reality. Even in this, like not, you know, going out there and talking directly about Michael because that would just get twisted and stuff like it has in the past, in my opinion. You know, beautiful woman, natural beauty. You can absolutely see Paris where she gets some of her absolutely stunning good looks from. And, you know, Debbie, she's like a horse farmer now and she's like just real. And I've always loved that about her. But, oh, my God, I wanted to give Debbie such a hug and someone please make sure she's seeing like some like a psychologist or something to deal with this this guilt and grief that she's feeling because I thought that was just gut-wrenching and I don't think she should she is not on the same level as Dr. Arnold Klein and we'll get into talking about Dr. Klein in a moment I'm sure but Debbie you should not be feeling that at all you were a nurse you were an employee. You could only do so much and you did not kill these people like you said it. I don't, I just, oh, it was gut-wrenching to see that. She's a strong woman who has overcome some really huge health concerns of her own. I think she was yeah. recently struggling with cancer. and Yeah, years ago. And I'm so glad that she's still here and, and looking amazing and beautiful. Like, I was so happy to see that. So, I mean, I would, we, like I said earlier in the show, I've spoken with Debbie before, and I do hope that at some point we'd be able to have her on the MJ cast. I know she was very hesitant to talk directly to TMZ about Michael, but man, it'd be amazing to, to talk with her about her memories of um, her late husband. So I want to wrap up the Murray bit because I want to respond to Murray. <laughs> I'm going to respond to Conrad Murray. He said in this documentary that Michael killed himself with propofol by administering it to himself. Now, the, the documentary really does not cover the abuses that Conrad Murray demonstrated of his responsibility as a medical practitioner. So let's just walk through. I've done a bit of a summary here so listeners are clear on what this man did. So first of all, he administered propofol outside of a hospital setting. That's not allowed. He needed to administer that drug in a monitored setting like a hospital with, I think it was revealed in the court proceedings that he should have had at least two staff present to actually do that. So these are the reasons why he was found guilty of manslaughter, which the documentary kind of just glosses over. 
he didn't have the correct equipment. He bought the cheapest possible equipment that he could find. I think he got a pulse oximeter for about 20 bucks, which is just ridiculous compared to what he was being paid per day to care for Michael Jackson. Good equipment. You, you see them in hospitals. Whenever you get put into a hospital for whatever reason, like maybe you got a viral infection or something, they'll put one of those clips over your finger. That's more or less usually a, a blood oxygen monitor or a pulse oximeter, which then is connected to an alarm, which is going to go off if something's wrong. Conrad Murray's one did not do anything like that. It was not the correct equipment. Dr. Murray left the room to take a long phone call after Michael had been administered propofol, which is just outrageous. His job was to monitor Michael's well-being. The amount of propofol he gave Michael was so huge, it could have killed anybody. This is what was found in the toxicology reports. After being found not responsive, Michael was given CPR on a bed, which even a general person knows is ineffective. And he lied to the paramedics and didn't tell them he even gave the propofol when the paramedics arrived. When the paramedics turned up, they said there was already lividity that had been you know, found in Michael. His pupils had dilated, which means that he had passed away quite a long time before they arrived. This also means that Dr. Murray was not demonstrating due care. So there is no evidence that Michael injected himself at all with this drug, that all of the equipment in the room was fingerprinted by the police and Michael's fingerprints were not found on this equipment. Uh, an expert at the trial testified that Michael could not have injected himself because the amount was so great. Had he done it himself, he would have been unconscious before he could have actually injected it all. And he was hooked up to a propofol drip as well. It wasn't even an injection. So all of these facts that came out in Conrad Murray's trial, a lot of them were completely excluded from the documentary. And so Murray's line that he's always had about Michael doing it himself was not countered by all this other evidence. So I just wanted to lay that out there. There's an actual reason that Conrad Murray went to jail. The judge in control of this trial, the jury, the experts involved in this did the right thing. They found him guilty for all of these reasons. And it's a shame that the documentary didn't foreground that as well. Yeah. On the other hand, I do think it was about time and very well achieved that they were exposing Arnie Klein. Yes. Because I do, th and you know what? I wish there was other names and shames. Well, some of them we'd, we'd, we'd be a bit shocked to learn about, I think, because some of the people in Michael's camp were involved in this sort of thing too. There you go. So this really does only scratch the surface, but in a way they were like, oh, you know, let's shift the blame from Murray and let's really villainize Arnold Klein heavily, including showing interviews from him where, you know, it was just like night and day what the words coming out of his mouth where his actions in everyday life was the complete opposite. Yeah. That was something to witness. And I think that's something that we we probably won't get into too much here because there's still a reason for you to watch the documentary is to learn about Arnold Klein. And this doco really, the last third of it, is as much about Arnold Klein as it is about Michael and Arnold's history in the industry and sort of what he tried to cultivate in relationships with patients. Yeah, and not just Arnold Klein either. I think like they sort of do pivot 
away from Michael personally in his story and they're using his story as a platform to sort of expose the medical malpractice that is widespread and a massive problem. Yeah. Not just in Hollywood, of course, where they give examples of other big names and celebrities that have died from a very similar story to this and, you know, being taken advantage of and maybe perhaps being addicts that just were unable to get the help that they needed to save them. So, and again, I'm not qualified to speak on this. So what I'm saying is just a very uneducated opinion, but I think they, this documentary sort of uses the tragic Michael Jackson story as a platform for this very serious and very real medical malpractice problem. Agreed. Now, there's some other really good things about this documentary as well. They've done their homework where they've gone back and they've actually researched and watched a lot of the testimony from the two trials, uh, the AEG wrongful death suit and the um, Conrad Murray trial, and they've included a lot of the deposition material from certain doctors like Dr. Stuart Finkelstein, who was on the Dangerous Tour. There's a lot there. Now, what I would say is that this documentary is, you know, it's it's made for TV. It's aesthetically very much made for TV. It had the makings, though, of being something even grander than that. I wish they had dug a little bit more into... The thing with this documentary is everything in it, except probably for the Debbie Rowe stuff and the Kerry Anderson stuff, we didn't talk about that, but a lot of this is kind of known. Like it's public knowledge, but all put into one place, which is very useful. Yeah, yeah. What they didn't do is go back and really talk to people that have inside exclusive stories, except Debbie, except Kerry. So things that we've uncovered on the MJ cast that people have never heard before, for around the 30th anniversary tour and, you know, Michael's family, like trying to do interventions to help him in different instances, even the story of Randy, you know, busting down the gates of his home before, uh, you know, before this is it. Yeah, the teacher that, you know, you interviewed the teacher in her book, she talks about the suitcase of medication that almost got her like imprisoned in yeah. the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that wasn't touched on. Elise did that great interview. And so there's so many stories like that that I think if they'd taken the time and maybe over a couple of years investigated this, they could have put together a documentary that was an even fuller picture. You know, I think that was the one bit that was missing. And we know that TMZ, you know, has its own perspective on the Jackson family, which I don't agree with. But I would have loved to have seen information in there about the many, many interventions that Michael's siblings tried to do to rescue him from the path he was going down. Yeah. In the deposition footage that was used, I was quite surprised some of the clips they showed where in the AEG trial, clips from Gongleware and Randy Phillips and oh. like, you know, the AEG executives. Oh, aren't these guys snakes, eh? Oh my God. And again, you know, that was the reality. And then at the opening of the show, we talk about this is it going back on Netflix. And that is this product. That's right. That made them so much money and continues to do so. That's right. Paul Gongaware, he's somebody that oh has a, a relationship with Michael that extends way back before AEG. He was an executive involved in the Dangerous and History Tours as well. 
So I wonder if he can remember that because he couldn't remember a lot of stuff when he was giving his testimony in court, could he? That, that, that was ridiculous, that stuff. But So bad. Oh, I don't remember this email, even though I, I replied to it and addressed it in multiple places. So dodgy. Like, just absolute snakes that I thought that was quite exposing for them, yeah. which is good. Do you think, I mean, in hindsight, so much of this makes sense. Like, when you watch all the footage of Michael coming out of Klein's office. At the time, as somebody that was following day-to-day what was going on with Michael I mean, we were, we were, we were looking at all the different press reports coming out every day. We knew at the time, even as fans living in Australia, you know, excited for this is it. We knew that Michael Jackson was visiting Dr. Klein every single day. We knew that we were seeing the pictures of it. Do you think the people that were directly around him saw the warning signs like, like we couldn't see, but do you think they could have seen them? Do you think people did enough? No, I don't. Because surely those that were literally close to him would have had a lot more context than what we were seeing mm. through TMZ and stuff like that. So, no, I think more maybe could have been done by people. Yeah. I think the ones that were trying were trying as hard as they could, but then there were others that probably were not trying at all. And look how it ended up. Well, I mean, the documentary, I think, you know, it does – it does the job of highlighting the other parties that were involved in Michael's death. Ever since when Michael died, I, I, I remember thinking it's not just Murray. There's other people. Obviously, AEG, when all that information started to come out from the trial, we started to become aware that AEG shared responsibility in that. You know, obviously, the doctors that had come before Murray and Dr. Klein shared responsibility in administering all of these drugs to Michael that were keeping him dependent. Dr. Murray obviously shared, has the lion's share of responsibility because it was under his watch that Michael passed away. I'd argue that Michael himself shared some responsibility in, you know, in what happened as well. So the documentary does a good job, I think, of sharing out or allocating that responsibility to all the different people who should have done or should have done more. But the problem with it is that they do that at the expense of Murray's own culpability. <laughs> they allow yeah. him to kind of try to get away with it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he spent four years in jail. I don't even think it was four years in the end, was it? It has this angle of like poor Conrad Murray took the blame for everything. He took the blame for what he did and that's why he went to jail. And he probably should still be there. I think any doctor that acts like he did, and they only touch really on a couple of others, but there's plenty more, countless more doctors the world over that engage in this behavior, and they should all be held accountable for that. Yeah. If there's an, someone who is chasing this sort of medication for these circumstances, like- how would there not be alarm bells ringing that that doctor who's taken those oaths would be like, I need to do something because this person is in this position, whether, you know, they're, you know, suffering from addiction or whatever, we need to help this person. And they just, they take the other route and get paid for it all along the way. 
Well, I think in some instances, like in, with some doctors, right, like Dr. Finkelstein is a good example. In his testimony, which is some of the most powerful testimony that I've ever heard from an individual that um, was involved with Michael Jackson, he talks about coming onto the scene during the Dangerous World Tour where other doctors had already been administering Michael with opioids. And so when he was brought on, he had this dual responsibility of he knew that he wanted to wean Michael off the medication. He knew he wanted to get Michael off the medication. But to do that, he couldn't do it cold. He still had to administer some of it in the process of getting him off it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think some doctors came into it for that point of view to try and help him. But then there were other doctors like Dr. Klein who didn't maybe ultimately want to help Michael. They saw him as like a cash cow. Yeah, a cash cow and a ticket to hanging around fame. Yeah. And so I think the problem is that maybe like, and I'm speaking as such an uneducated person on this topic, but it would seem to me that at least during that period of time, there wasn't a lot of regulatory control around those doctors or consequences for them doing what they were doing. I don't know if it's any different now, but I don't I don't think it is. Like in my profession in teaching, if I do one thing wrong, like seriously, it's probably the same for you as a flight attendant, like there's always people around you observing what you're doing and if you act in a way that's inappropriate, you're you're gone, like <laughs> there are safety rules for a reason. Yeah. You know, it's a different thing if it's a mistake and you don't correct that behavior. But if you are intentionally breaking safety regulations, that's a very different scenario. Yeah. This is the time it would have been awesome to have Dr. Raj on the show because we <laughs> we could ask him about that. But um, We could easily then extend the episode another hour, hour. at least. <laughs> it's probably different in a hospital setting, I would say, too, than like a private clinic. Like Dr. Klein's clinic was literally above a pharmacy. <laughs> That he but was I've had using. like um, personal experience of people that have worked in hospitals and with the actual uh, equipment and machinery that dispenses the drugs to nurses and doctors in hospitals. And though even the equipment in hospitals tracks the amount of of certain medications and where it is dispensed to and you know to actually even get access to that is so regulated and tracked people can be held accountable by you know just following the information and stuff like that so yeah definitely like you said it would be different in a hospital setting compared to like a clinic and that's where this sort of nightmare scenario is happening um, I'm, and i'm sure there are still you know bad things happening in hospital settings as well but you would surely be aware that the risk of getting caught by doing something illegal like stealing drugs or giving them to people that shouldn't be getting them and you know you'll be found you will be found out yeah and there was a whole network around Michael that was allowing this to happen. It wasn't just Dr. Klein only. There was, you know, one 
pretty shocking scene in the documentary is when they show all the names of the people that were being used to get the drugs from the pharmacy or the fake names or the real names. I don't know. But like there are names on there. There are people like Michael Amir Williams, who is Michael's like assistant. There's Kai Chase, who is his chef. There are a whole list of names of people that were either their name was being used to get the medication or they were getting the medic- medication. There's other testimony which talks about Michael's, you know, like hair and makeup people being involved in getting him the medication. And it, it's pretty shocking, like the amount of people involved around him that were involved to some extent. It's just a horrendously tragic story. It is. So as good as the documentary is at trying to put all of that in perspective, I still think there's room at some point in the future in the coming decades, like maybe a book or something that really tries to lay out the history of it all and who was involved. But it's a good step in that direction, except for the Murray stuff, I think. Yeah. So so what are your final verdicts? Would you recommend a fan watch it? I'm not sure. I'm so undecided. Because in the end, going back to the bigger picture, like I mentioned before, all of this was happening in the background and- We know the end of the story, and it is like this gut-wrenching Greek tragedy of biblical proportions that it ended the way that it did, and that this was happening in the background. But that part of the story is not why I am a fan, and probably not why some other people are fans. We are fans, and we love him because of the person that he was and the art that he created. So it's not something I think is necessary to add to that. Like, yes, it gives a full, fuller picture, but I don't know if I would recommend it or not. Maybe like, I think I would recommend it with a grain of salt, like recommend, I'm saying, yeah, probably watch it to have a fuller historical understanding of the person. But please note that they're trying to sympathize with Conrad Murray in a way that's pretty unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. If you can watch it knowing that, the rest of it is is pretty useful. All right, Q, now we've, we've finished our news for this episode, but I've got to ask before we, we keep going, you know, you've got some great content that you put out on social media. I love all your opinions and thoughts of, of things you put out and things you stand for. Uh, so can you share with the audience where people can find you online? Yes, on Twitter. You can find me at what was the Q. And on Instagram, it is what was the Q2 with the numeral two at the end. And yeah, awesome. that's where you can find me. Still not on Twitter a huge amount, but I do check in now and again. And But I still love Instagram at the moment. Okay. Now, the MJ Cast can be found online at the MJ Cast on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. We're everywhere on social media. We also uh, like to be listened to as a podcast. You can hear us on YouTube if you want, if you search us there, but we like to be listened to as a podcast as intended. So search for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We love it when you rate and review us as well. That really helps out a lot with the visibility of the show. And we just love seeing those ratings come through. You know, if you give us a five-star rating and talk about what you love about the show, that kind of thing, uh, that comes through on our email address and really gives us a kick of encouragement. So feel free to do that if you would like. And also 
our shop, themjcast.com slash shop. You can buy some of our merch and any of the proceeds from that merchandise sale go towards uh, really good causes. We like to give back to humanitarian efforts pretty regularly. And that also helps with uh, show running costs like equipment, server costs, website costs, all of that. So we love it if you could check the shop out. What else was there? Oh, yeah. Stay tuned for more information about Cheryl and June's incredible podcast about the Michael Jackson allegations and the truth around those allegations. The series is called Michael Jackson Case for Innocence, and it is not far away. So we can't wait for that one to come out. Yeah. Thank you so much, Q. Thank you for having me back here. Shout out to you and Elise and to Carter doing a great job. Well done, team. Well done. Thank you. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on the MJ cast. You help build it with me and it's always awesome when you come back. So I can't wait to talk to you again about uh, Michael Jackson and I hope you find a chance to uh, keep Michaeling. Michael on. And just for our US listeners, I'm sure you're all very aware that your midterm elections are coming up on Tuesday, November 8. And I really just want to encourage you all to uh, register to vote, to find election information, to check your enrollment to vote. Head to rockthevote.org. Please use your voice. Use your power to make an impact and make that change, please. So I am just really encouraging you and hopefully inspiring you. Just head to rockthevote.org and register to vote and vote. But anyway, Q, I heard you said earlier to me before recording that you have a bit of an announcement that you want to make too. That was it. That was the rock the vote thing. Oh, that was it. Yeah. Okay, I thought, you know what I thought it was going to be? No. I thought you were going to reveal to the audience that you are finally a guest on the Black Jackson Estate. Oh, I need to line that up. My God, shout out to the ladies at the Black Jackson Estate podcast. I'm oh just my saying, God, so we, good, their it's show. time. It's time. Yeah. You know, they, they've been giving you some love on Twitter and I need you on the Black <laughs> Jackson Estate. <laughs> okay, I will go through my roster. <laughs> And I will send it through to the ladies. I've had currently in a good roster, so hopefully it lines up. But I know they're busy people as well. But yeah, their content, their their Bad 35 episode was so good, so good. And you can get exclusive uh, episodes and content if you're one of their Patreon subscribers as well. But um, yeah, they're doing such an amazing job. But all right, yes, I will reach out and send them my roster. 
and see if all of yeah, our busy go. lives can line that up. 